0: Many students who left for spring break in March of 2020 are only now returning to in-person school for the first time this fall. Today, Richmond Public Schools extended the closures until at least April 13th. In a letter sent to parents, the superintendent announced the district... Oh, rent- yeah, a little longer. They're deciding what they're going to do, Sheba. And today marks the end of spring break for most metro Atlanta school districts. Atlanta Public Schools going fully virtual this week. The superintendent. It might sound nice in theory, time away, Away from the classroom but schooling never stopped and it was hard and imagine what virtual class was like for five-year-olds
1: guys what happened she left the meeting yeah hi, she left hi. the meeting
2: <laughs> she it kicked it her out the internet yeah see mm-hmm. me um all of you guys I I see that there's a little record sign at the top of the screen.
0: (laughs) Kind of cute. Kind of a nightmare. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, the kids are back in school. Online school was hard enough technically, But it was also tough mentally. Many college students scrolled through their pain using TikTok. But in the new school year, will they hang on to their digital coping habits? And should they? With good reasons, Cassie Deering has that story.
3: For college student Faith Deering, the biggest pitfall of online school was not having a chair. Imagine a square-cubed ottoman and then um, the floor and me, and that's it. Faith, who, full disclosure, is my sister, is a student at Ole Miss. In spring 2020, Ole Miss went virtual, which meant Faith was taking classes from her bedroom floor.
4: After about the second hour of me, you know, constantly being on my computer... It hits me. Oh, wait, I haven't gotten up and used my legs in two hours. Let's get up. And then when I try
3: to get up, I hear my knees crack. And when I get up, it's like, oof, that hurt. Location matters if you're doing online school. Even if students have a good chair and a desk, it's often the people they're living with who make up their daily distractions. Another
4: thing that was kind of distracting at first was my family family no offense. Um, They sometimes would like pop their heads in during my online Zoom classes and I would have to, you know, look away from the screen and my teacher would be like, who's there? And I'd be like, nobody. Um, So now I, every time I have a Zoom class, I usually put a chair in between the doorway that, you know, separates the room that I use for Zoom
3: classes and the rest of the house. Maya Neer, an internet with good reason, was also
2: battling through Zoom classes from her childhood bedroom. So the first week of online classes, I would still, like, sit at my desk and, like, have my camera on and that kind of stuff. And then a lot of my peers started, like, having their camera off. And I assume kind of just, like, staying in bed more and, like, more informal. By the end of the day, Maya says she usually had a horrible headache. And I would just feel really tired and also kind of, like, frustrated with myself. Like, I haven't, like, moved at all today. And it was hard because even after the last Zoom call, I still had, like, homework and stuff to do on my computer. So it never felt like I was really done. When Maya finally closed her laptop, she was in a really bad mood. And I would just go the two feet from my desk to my bed and lie in my bed and watch TikTok, probably. TikTok. It's probably the
3: biggest name in today's internet culture. You can find just about anything on TikTok. Cottagecore DIYs, travel hacks, Mozart trap remixes. All you have to do is scroll. And for those struggling to find motivation in their lives, it's a
2: bright light in a never-ending Zoom day. My TikTok is generally pretty positive, I think. So, like, a lot of babies and, like, baby animals and that kind of stuff. At the same time, some students have been spending too many hours on the app. Opening TikTok has become something of a bad habit, maybe even an addiction. Basically, I got really addicted to TikTok right at the beginning of the pandemic. It was just like a constant source of entertainment. And usually I would just go on it before bed or during a break in between classes. But then sometimes I'd get like really glued to it and would watch it during class or like even during like little breaks, which is bad. How many hours were you spending on it? I don't know. I should probably look on my phone, but I'm kind of scared to. I think at, at its worst, probably like three hours a
5: day. We know that many people have been turning a lot to social media during this time. This is Bethany Teachman, a clinical psychologist and director of clinical studies at the University
3: of Virginia. She says time on TikTok isn't necessarily bad.
5: TikTok has inspired all kinds of great dances There are a lot of really valuable social justice movements that have been really promoted on TikTok in important ways. I know my own children have found that a really valuable source of connection in some ways during this time. But it's important to consider what you're giving up when you spend hours scrolling. So if you're spending so much time on social media that you're not getting good sleep, you're not exercising, you're not getting outside, and you're not having any live interactions with people, it's probably gonna have some negative effects. If, on the other hand, it's part of a more balanced lifestyle that includes doing things to stay productive, doing things that are relaxing, doing things that are fun, doing exercise, getting good sleep, all of that mix of healthy activities that we need to have, then social media is probably going to be playing a more positive role. Teachman says that monitoring your social media use doesn't have to be a pain. You can think of it like a game. So if you are wondering whether you're spending too much time on social media, monitor your mood based on how much time you're spending and see if there is a relationship and then play with it. So we have to sort of treat ourselves as almost, you know, doing mini science experiments where we track what's going on and kind of see the effect because there isn't going to be a one size fits all solution of how to manage this time. It's going to be some trial and error and you're going to want to see the effect of different things that you try and keep the stuff that works well for you. If you're turning to social media to manage stress or anxiety, Teachin says there are probably
3: better tools for that, including MindTrails, a brain training tool she's developed.
5: Which is designed to help people think in less rigidly catastrophic ways. So we know that when people are vulnerable to anxiety, they have a tendency to kind of assume the worst in a situation. So if there's uncertainty, they're going to think, wow, this is going to turn out really, really badly and I won't be able to cope with it that type of catastrophic thinking is very common in anxiety. And so we want to help people break that a little bit so they can think more flexibly and realize that situations can turn out in lots of different ways. That kind of stress management will be key as students return to
3: in-person schooling. In our virtual conversation, Faith Deering imagined what it will be like to be back in the classroom at Ole Miss.
4: I would have packed all of my supplies and books and preparations and syllabi The night before my backpack, and then I would go downstairs to my dorm's cafeteria and then get some food, say hi to the lunch ladies,
3: and then out I go into the blistering sun. Between welcome weeks and basketball games, Faith would find herself reconnecting with friends and communities. But she still has reservations about fall 2021.
4: Even though I'm vaccinated, I still feel a bit nervous just because I don't know who else around me is or is not vaccinated because a lot of people in the South do not really want to be vaccinated. And I don't want to be affected or have my family be affected by it.
3: Maya's also catching up on the things she missed last year. She's decided to focus on what matters to her, friends and meaningful internships. But that doesn't leave much room for TikTok.
2: A lot of the work is stuff I want to be doing, like not school that I'm feeling like super stressed out about. So I don't feel like I need as much of a stress relief or like distraction. And I've just been like with family and friends a lot more often because the pandemic is getting better here. I guess I'm like less lonely, so I don't have to watch TikTok as much. That's like super depressing.
3: Whether time on TikTok is depressing or an antidepressant might depend on who's scrolling. But with the world opening up, it's no surprise that trendy dances, dank memes, and online rants are fading into the background. That's okay, just as long as there's always a place for cute animal videos. For With Good Reason, I'm Cassie Deering.
0: all heard the horror stories about teaching. Teachers don't make enough, they're overworked. But then in March of 2020, thanks to the pandemic, they got labeled heroes. But the celebrating may have been too little too late. Brad Bazell is a professor of educational leadership at Radford University. He says the lack of autonomy for teachers in their classrooms is compounding with bad pay. And now the educational field is losing its best recruiters, current teachers. Brad, there's a shortage of young people wanting to enter the teaching field. What do you think is most responsible for that? What factors seem to be driving that?
6: Well, money does matter. The teaching profession has never been highly paid. And and, uh, for Folks who, who are choosing their careers and they're looking at spending uh, tens of thousands of dollars on a college education, uh, they, 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 they look at money. But but money's not the top uh, factor. People want to go into teaching because they want to make a difference in, in the lives of children. You know, for, for decades, that's why uh, we chose to be teachers. Um, but what we, we have seen in our education system over the last 20 years and what all of our young people have experienced for their entire K-12 career is a different education system. Um, one that's been driven by uh, high stakes uh, testing for accountability purposes. And at one time, I'm a former principal, and um, as a principal, when I would interview folks who wanted to be teachers, many of them would speak of being the children of teachers and their so that they had grown up among educators and therefore wanted to be an educator. Or they've spoken uh, about uh, teachers that they had who inspired them and encouraged them to be a teacher. And what we have today are teachers in the classroom telling their students, don't be a teacher. You don't want to do this for the rest of your life. We have parents who are teachers telling their children, I'm not going to pay for you to go to college if you're going to be a teacher. So, so, so we, we have created a system over the last 20 years that has, uh, as, as I, was, I was reading recently, uh, a line that says, we have taken all the joy out of teaching. Was there a
0: time early in your career where you experienced the joy of teaching and then a period later where you saw that joy made difficult to
6: achieve? Yes. And you know, from the beginning, um, I have loved teaching. I have I have had that joy of teaching. I was actually a career switcher 35 years ago. I, I had a business degree and had worked out in the insurance industry for about four years. And, and uh, as I said at that time, I wanted a job that mattered, where at the end of the day, at the end of my life, it will have mattered the work that I did. And and so I I quit my job, I went back to school, got my teaching certificate, and took a substantial pay cut and never regretted that decision once. And still today, as a, a teacher of teachers who aspire to be school leaders, I still have that joy in teaching. But I can distinctly remember as a principal in in, uh, the early 2000s, all the work that that, that we would do uh, the entire school year would be boiled down to a 50-question multiple-choice test in reading, in math, in in history, and in science. And and the scores on those tests were, were all that mattered uh, to the public, that—that's what was going to to have our school labeled as successful or failing. I don't know of anyone who wants to to be in a school that's labeled as failing.
0: You couldn't have known back then that this was the beginning of something that would last for decades. This was born of the No Child Left Behind
6: initiative. It was. They began writing the law in 2001, and it was actually enacted in 2002 in in the George Bush administration. There there were many of us, uh, myself included, who who looked at the law as it was written and and said, there's no way this will last. This will be gone two, three years max, and, and it will be over with. But what happened is it didn't go away. And the next administration, the first Obama administration, kind of doubled down on that that same idea of, of high-stakes testing uh, as being – a driver for school improvement the race to the top legislation that came out of the obama administration not only required testing of students but it required that the testing of students be calculated into each teacher's performance evaluation uh, so so as if the teachers didn't have enough stress to begin with we we, we added that additional piece on Help
0: me understand why we were so motivated to leave no child behind. I mean, that does sound like a
6: good idea. What had driven this? It's a great idea. Who, who wants to leave a child behind? I don't know a single person who wants to leave a child behind, but I certainly don't know a single uh, educator in our public schools who wants to leave children behind. But we, we have to really go back to 1983 as the genesis of a lot of this. Uh, a report was released called A Nation at Risk and And, in that report that it was a an indictment of our public school system, the primary basis for that indictment was the United States standing on international test scores. But what most people didn't understand at that time and still don't understand today is in the United States we are one of the few education systems in the world that educates. Every single child. We, 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 we turn no child away. We, we, we bring them all into our public schools. And accordingly, we test all of our children. The countries um, that, that we were uh, losing to in, in those international tests were, were countries that only educated their top students. And the, accordingly, they only tested their top students. So So we had all of our students competing against a a small top tier of students from other countries.
0: Conversely, however,
6: there have been moment after moment in
0: the intervening years where like why Johnny can't read or concerns about are we warehousing public school students or a mind is a terrible thing to waste, right? This idea that some students were languishing in classes, that it wasn't about the race to the top so much as Who are we leaving behind? What solution might we have come up with that would be less stressful on teachers but still bring everybody along?
6: So uh, since since I've thrown rocks at No Child Left Behind, I, I will also make a positive statement about it. What you're talking about right now is the one thing that No Child Left Behind really brought to the forefront that was important. Uh, Prior to No Child Left Behind, the states who who were doing uh, using high-stakes tests for accountability generally asked uh, schools for their total student population to reach a certain pass rate, but they only looked at the total student population. What No Child Left Behind said is, yes, you must look at your total school population, but you must also look at the different demographic groups in your school separately. And when we did that, it it really shined the light on the fact that we are not serving groups of students well. Uh, We're not serving our students of color well. We're not serving our students with um, English, not as their native language. We're not serving students with disabilities well. We're not serving students from poverty well. And, and, And No Child Left Behind helped to shine the light on that. And while that's generated a lot of conversation, what hasn't happened is any closing of the, of the gap. Uh, we're, we're not getting better by the measures we use, by these high-stakes tests. We're not getting better uh, at serving those students that, that we identified as not being served well. Do you think we can be better? Oh, I know we can be better. There, there are models out there uh, now that s- some might call new, but um, uh, that they actually go back better than 100 years themselves. It, this idea of deeper learning uh, it, it is an idea that's getting a lot of traction in terms of conversation in, in education today. And, and it's really about uh, engaging students through project-based learning. Uh, it's asking us to focus on the higher-level thinking for students as opposed to the recall uh, that gets measured mostly on on your multiple choice test. It it calls for student agency, where where students get some choice and control uh, over their learning, over what they're learning, over how they're learning it, uh, which currently, with with the system we have in place, that's nearly impossible to do. Um, It it also encourages involving students in authentic work work that that, that is relevant to them, that's relevant to their communities uh, in in which they live. Uh, And and of course, today, what technology allows us to do to not leverage the technology in learning would be almost criminal.
0: If someone made the argument, I'm sorry teachers are feeling so constrained from their more creative and loving impulses in the classroom. But this is very important stuff. We really need them to be hitting that bar of getting every child in the classroom up to speed on these standards of learning that each state has come up with as necessary to sort of demonstrating uniform accomplishment on the part of students. You
6: would say what? I I would say that we can do it without the... the Um, high-stakes testing mentality that that, that we have in place. Uh, First of all, these schools that have embraced deeper learning, and and, and we've got numerous models uh, around the country who have, even without focusing on the test, as most the vast majority of our schools do right now, even without focusing on that, Without teaching content in isolation, uh, without doing practice tests, you know, I- I every six weeks, they are actually scoring as well, if not better, on on the state test. The, the problem is that we have so few of the, of these schools around. Um, that there is uh, a network of schools called the New Tech Network, but. but uh, There's only about 120,000 students across the country who are in new tech network schools, where where we've got 50 million students in our schools around the country. So what we have to figure out how to do is to scale up uh, these pockets of excellence that are taking place right now. But that's hard to do because we've created a problem for ourselves to go into a, a, a school now and say, let's forget doing all the things we've been doing the, the last decade to, 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 to pass the test, and we're going to try this, this something, this really new that you're going to enjoy teaching more, the kids are, are going to be invested in, and, and the outcomes are going to be great. Will you go with me? That's, that's a hard sell. Yeah. That's a hard sell. Yeah, because if, if it flops, we're going to get that label, failing school. If it flops, I'm going to get that label, failing teacher.
0: How can those of us who are not teachers support teachers as they enter another pandemic year, another unprecedented year?
6: Yes. You know, the, the work that teachers have done this past year is is absolutely unbelievable. Um, to, to to have been asked to learn new technologies, to teach remotely, to, to simultaneously teach a group of children who are in front of you, while also teaching a group of children who, who are in Zoom on your computer screen, it, it is just unimaginable. And if we go back uh, to the beginning of the pandemic, when schools were first closed, and on a dime, teachers made changes and made adjustments and and, and and provided packets of work, provided online uh, opportunities, who, who visited homes and delivered meals, who, who did all of these things, through social media and otherwise, you saw almost a universal praising of teachers, where, where the public uh, reached out and gave teachers that hug, gave them that pat on the back. And teachers can go a long way on a pat on the back and and a recognition that they are working hard and that they are doing important work. But they get far too little of that. Any problem in education immediately gets blamed on the teacher's. The, the 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 stress of high stakes testing on families and children. It gets blamed on teachers, and teachers have nothing to do with that decision. Yeah, you know, these are decisions actually that are not even made by educators. These are decisions made by state and federal legislation. Um, so, so, reaching out to teachers and and saying, "I, I see what you're doing, and I appreciate it." I know you're you're putting in extra effort. I know you're you're uh, reaching into your own pocket to buy school supplies for your kids. I, I know you're working uh, Saturday and Sunday to be ready to teach next week. Uh, that would go a long way into helping teachers feel more satisfied with their work. Do you also think that? Ironically,
0: with the pandemic and the loss of high-stakes testing in that first year of schools being closed down, that perhaps the system is changing, that we are reducing the need for high-stakes testing as a consequence of how the pandemic is changing schooling?
6: I'm not sure what all states did, but in Virginia, when we closed schools in March of 2020, We did not administer the test that spring, but throughout last year, when schools were open and closed and open again and remote and hybrid, we still tested our students in the spring. We went right back to testing. And in fact, for this year, we're adding in an additional test. We're going to start doing fall testing in reading and math in addition to spring testing.
0: If you had one final appeal to lawmakers on both sides of the aisle in all, sta- in all states who have some control over this and
6: at the national level, what would you ask them to consider? What is the purpose of our education system? When we look at profiles of a graduate, when we look at school mission statements, we see the language there. We know what people want out of schools. But that's not the schools. We don't have schools designed to do that. Most states in the country now have what's called a profile of a graduate, where they uh, kind of lay out, here is what a student should look like when they leave our schools. And they're all lofty, wonderful ideals. We focus on what's called the five C's, critical thinking, creative thinking, communication, collaboration, and civic mindedness. All of those are great things. That's what we say we we want our students to to have when they leave, but we don't measure that. We measure isolated chunks of content through 50-question multiple-choice tests. I would encourage those legislators, members of the legislature, to, to go look at these pockets of excellence that we have, to read Ted Smith's What School Could Be, to read Scott McCloud and Dean Shiresky, Different Schools for a Different World, to watch the documentary Most Likely to Succeed. And we can see examples of excellence that inspires most of all students to excellence, but also inspires educators to bring their students to such excellence. Well, Brad Bazell, this
0: has been an uplifting conversation. Thank you for talking with me in With Good Reason.
6: Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Brad Bazell is a professor of education at Radford University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back, this is With Good Reason. When many parts of life came to a halt two springs ago, nature still did her thing. The dogwoods bloomed, the leaves returned to trees, and the birds sang their songs. And many of us found we had the time to pay attention to nature. Alan Forrest is a professor of psychology at Radford University. He's long led mindfulness Mondays for his co workers there, but last year mindfulness Mondays became a lifeline for many of his colleagues and students who were home around the country. On that Monday that you and your students first were separated due to COVID, you'd been doing something you call Mindfulness Mondays for faculty and staff for years before the pandemic hit. Tell me what those were and what they were like.
7: Yeah, so basically what that's like, it's a drop-in session. It's 30 minutes from 12 to 12.30, and it's open to all faculty and staff at the university. Where would you do it? Well, when the weather is nice, everyone loves doing it outside uh, in the fresh air and the sun and um, being able to breathe outside of a building.
0: Why do you think the pandemic was so hard on people's mental health?
7: For me, that's that's an easy one. Um, I think the cruelest part of the pandemic was as a species, as a human species, as human beings... We connect with family, we connect with friends, we connect with the people we work with. We're social beings. And there was a lack of sense of connection and community, and just being in the same space, being with people. Um, And to me, that was the number one thing. And that was hard. That was really, really hard for, for most of us.
0: So when the shutdown came, and we went from in-person classes to Zooms. You took your weekly meditation with faculty and staff and made that something that ended up being a lot larger, but online.
7: Correct, correct. It was online, and we did a number of different things. We, I've been also doing for the last four or five years just a student mindfulness meditation practice session once a week. And we do that at the fitness and wellness center here on campus. We continue to do that. We just transition that to the Zoom format. And then what we also did, myself and a colleague, was open up a weekly session for graduate students. And then the other thing that I did was um, what I call the faculty support group, once a week via the Zoom format, and just talk about some of the challenges, struggles, both professionally in their role as college professors, but also personally, the struggles they were experiencing with their students trying to really connect with the students who were struggling. Some students were living at home. Parents had lost jobs and they had to go out and work. Students were struggling. Uh, Several students live in, in impoverished areas. They may live in far southwest in the Appalachian area where internet (laughs) is not available, just attending class via Zoom. They couldn't do it from their house. So they would drive and sit outside of a McDonald's that had Wi-Fi just to attend class. And for some of these folks, they may have had to drive 10, 15 miles.
0: I guess students were uniquely affected in some ways because they're mostly living alone. Yes. And also they're young enough not to understand fully what comes after this do we ever get out of it
7: yes exactly and one of the things that we know is without having certainty without knowing what comes next anxiety arises within us you know and i think that was one of the the key things just the not knowing and then young people in college not having the life experience you know that older individuals have in terms of how to navigate that not knowing People, we all like to have some degree of control as to what comes next and what does this mean for my life? You know, I think about, you know, students who were seniors and, uh, you know, finishing up a four-year college experience and they're looking ahead as to what comes next for them in terms of going on to graduate school for those that choose to do that or others that are securing uh, a job, uh, employment, or embarking on a career.
0: Why were young people, not all of them, but a few, especially hard hit by the shutdown, was it that they were alone and isolated?
7: Yeah, I think that was a, that's a part of it. We are very social beings, particularly young people where their peer group is so important, not only their families, but also being with their friends. And just having too much alone time. Uh, alone time is a good thing. And certainly, when we're engaged in a mindfulness meditation practice, we're just allowing ourselves to be with ourselves. But um, maybe just a little too much time alone and not engage in all the social activities, particularly on a college campus, that college students do.
0: You said a lot of us were in lockdown with our pets, our beloved pets. Right. And actually, that was a great thing, that we should cling to them because they are so healing.
7: Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a dog and two cats, and I always consider them as my in-home mindfulness meditation teachers because if you think about it, and we'll just look at, at uh, our, our, our four-legged canine friends, um... They're always in the moment, they live in the moment, Um, they're non-judgmental, they go with the flow, they accept things as they are. If I'm having a bad hair day, or if um, my, my, my clothes don't match or whatever, it's totally irrelevant. They accept me for the person who I am. And that's one of the things that these practices can do, can help us accept ourselves just the way we are for who we are, and in doing so, then radiate that outwards to then accept others for the wonderful, beautiful, creative, and oftentimes different individuals that they are. Did you yourself
0: have any particularly bad days during the pandemic?
7: Yeah, I have some elderly parents, and they're living in a retirement community, and those areas were hard hit. I was very concerned about them. I was concerned about my students. Um, some of them uh, live in uh, family situations or living situations that may not be ideal, and they were kind of locked down with them. Um You know, there were some tough times where I, just because I practice mindfulness meditation, it doesn't mean that I don't get stressed out as well. And uh, there was so much uncertainty and not knowing in my lives and information changed from one moment to the next. But one of the things that uh, really helped keep me grounded was looking out my window, or better yet, going out in my yard, and it was springtime, it was mid-March, and here in southwest Virginia, you know, the mountains and the trees and the meadows and the flowers and grasses, everything began to bloom. When all facets of our lives, all domains of our lives, were impacted by the pandemic, you know, nature was still doing her thing, And spring came, and the dogwoods bloomed, and the daffodils came up, and the grass turned green, and leaves came out on the trees. And I found that to be a very comforting thing, because that was normal, when just about every other part of my life seemed to be changed in some way.
0: I think we all felt that way about spring. Spring felt so especially welcome, beautiful hopeful, and um, all-enveloping, right?
7: Mm -hmm. And and what made it maybe a particularly good spring is that we were really paying attention to it, right? Mindfulness is all about paying attention on purpose in the present moment and without judging it. And we can just embrace the majesty and beauty and the show that nature puts on Every spring. And and I would submit, you know, every season is beautiful. It's different, but it's all got its wonder, joy, and beauty in its own way.
0: Do you actually teach a course on mindfulness at Radford?
7: Yes. We have an undergraduate course as well as a graduate level course in uh, my program, which is a counselor education program. And I think for young people, whether they know it or not, there's a thirst or hunger for having periods of silence and stillness in their lives. All of our lives, but particularly college students' lives, are very uh, hurried, harried, busy. They're always moving, doing, and going. And we live in this overstimulated world and with our devices, there's always things happening. And they really like the notion of being what we call unplugged. For a little while and just allow themselves to sit and to be present with whatever is arising for them.
0: Do you think we should be giving them this experience earlier in their undergraduate education?
7: Yeah. One of the things that many of the students say, and oftentimes they take the intro to uh, mindfulness meditation course, which, which has no prerequisites, but they take it in their last semester in college because they've fulfilled all their required courses. And one of the comments that I hear over and over again is, I wish I had taken this course when I was a freshman because in it I've learned how to more skillfully manage how I respond rather than react to events. And it also allows them a little oasis of inner peace and calm in their lives. And they've learned how to do that.
0: I can't imagine a I can't imagine a greater gift, right?
7: Yeah, exactly. It's it's a life skill that um, I think they can carry with them. In fact, one of our students a few years ago, she was going on an interview for grad school, and so we still had a month left in the course. And she went on the interview and came back. And she was so excited because she said, you know, I was really nervous before I was getting interviewed, but I just sat in the waiting room before going in. There were two people that were going to talk to me. I just closed my eyes and brought my focus to my breath, and it really calmed me down so that when I went in there, I could be very attentive and responsive to the questions that they were asking. So she utilized in the moment, what she had learned in that class. And so it was very gratifying to me as a meditation teacher to hear her say that and use it. Because these skills that we're teaching them are not to just sit uh, by themselves in their rooms um, in, in formal meditation, but to bring these practices into their everyday life.
0: Yeah. Well, Alan Forrest, thank you for sharing your insights with me and With Good Reason.
7: Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure sharing, sharing these practices with you today.
0: Alan Forrest is a professor of psychology at Radford University. Last year, millions of American students left the classroom to prevent the spread of a virus. Some didn't return for nearly two years. There's really no precedent for that. And young adults returning to classrooms now are feeling, well, a lot. My next guest is Robert McNabb, a professor of economics at Old Dominion University. He says students need support processing the past year and returning to class. Robert, many students have been isolated this year, year and a half, really. What do you think is the most urgent mental health need for students returning to classrooms in the fall?
1: So right now, if we're standing here in August and we're thinking about students who are just going back to class in some states or are looking forward to going back in the class, the worst thing we can do is to bring them back, have an outbreak, and then send them back to remote learning. That disruption, that uncertainty, has an unestimable toll. We just don't know how bad the toll of mental health is. And it creates untold costs now and into the future.
0: How have your own children responded to masking in the classroom? Do they hate it or are they resigned to it?
1: Well, my experience with my kids has been a non-issue. It has been, we got to wear a mask, but we get to go to school. It's not a big deal.
0: What did you notice during the year and a half we were in sort of shutdown mode in your own children? How old are they and what stressors did you see them going through?
1: Well, I have an adult now, he just graduated from high school, and I have uh, two teenagers, one that is in high school and one that is in middle school. What I noticed is all three entered into the pandemic in relatively good academic standing. We had issues, but those issues were, did you complete your homework on time or spend more time on video games than we asked you to? When we transitioned to remote schooling, that structure was ripped away from us. That ability to say, okay, your day begins at 7, you get on the bus, you go to school, you come home, you do all your homework, and then your time is yours. And this was just not us. We, in talking with other parents, we saw this time and time again. Even relatively high-performing students tended to struggle at times. And if your child had a learning disability or was already behind academically, the pandemic just compounded the problem.
0: So bad as it was for your family, your children, there are other children also experiencing much deeper mental health crises. Can you talk about what seems to have caused those stressors that has led to the crises for these others?
1: Yes. One thing I have to say from my personal experience is that I have been extremely fortunate. The worst problem we encountered was that our kids would not turn in work at time. We would figure it out and then spend a week catching back up. We did not have a child who exhibited symptoms of anxiety or significant depression. And you didn't lose your job or life. Right. Yeah, my life was fairly stable for families that experienced a COVID shock. That is, somebody in the family was infected or hospitalized or unfortunately died, or an economic shock. They lost their job, their hours were reduced, or just the combination of those two. The kids no longer had that structured environment of the school, which provided a modicum of safety. That disappeared. They were home. They saw the stress. They saw that public health toll. They saw relatives getting sick. They never had an opportunity to move out of that environment.
0: What about mental health resources? Even before the pandemic, I had a friend whose young nephew was spiraling into drugs and in bad circumstances. His mother was desperate to get him into treatment before it went even farther, but there was nothing available. Appointments were months away, and her problem was immediate. Is that common, even in the better times pre-pandemic?
1: Prior to the pandemic in Virginia, we already were facing a mental health crisis. We were obviously underfunding mental health for, for youth and adults. Uh, if you think about the current discussions about the rise in homelessness in the United States, the evidence time and time again comes back to many of the homeless who are long-term homeless have persistent mental health and substance abuse disorders. And those two are interdependent. And we have to ask ourselves, when do we start thinking about Mental health disorders, like we think about cholesterol or cancer or breaking a leg, right? It's not like, oh, you have a bone sticking out of your leg. We know we should call an ambulance. And so we don't resource it accordingly. Now, 18 or so months into a pandemic, we have to ask ourselves, what's happened to access to those mental health resources for children and youth? Right. Right. And their primary access point where they can get referred to services in many cases is through the school system. But now they're looking at the school system through a screen. And that face-to-face interaction, that learning students' habits and behaviors, that system of support disappeared. And so the problem where parents were trying to find resources prior to the pandemic just became even worse.
0: What do you think our biggest mental health needs are? Do we need big state mental hospitals, small counseling centers, residential treatment programs, school guidance counselors? Where should our dollars go?
1: Yes. (laughs) I think the answer is (laughs) yes. at, At the end of the day, it is not expensive, in my opinion, to invest in mental health now relative to investing in jails and hospitalizations in the future.
0: So what do you think we should do next? How can we ensure that we're prioritizing student mental health?
1: We know the federal government has provided extra funds to states through the COVID relief packages to be used fairly broadly at the state's discretion. In Virginia, we're seeing increased investments in mental health resources. Up to $500 million has been proposed. If that passes, that would be a very significant investment, but it's one-time money. The question then becomes, does the state decide to keep that level of funding in the future, or is this a one-time injection? And so every state is facing this question. You have new money from the federal government. Where do you invest that? Do you invest in roads? Do you invest it in jails? Do you invest it in people? And if you're going to invest it in people, obviously given the mental health toll of the pandemic, youth and and adult mental health services is the way to go. But one of the worst things you can do is to use that new money to scale up a bunch of services, to provide people hope and a modicum of treatment And then go, oh, funding's over, we're done. So if we're going to do this, we need to do it right in a sustained way. So it's a good first step in Virginia and other states to invest in mental health. The real question then becomes, does it get locked into future budgets? Or is this just one-time money that makes everybody essentially feel good? And then in two years, we applaud ourselves from having to address the problem and move on when we haven't addressed the problem in the long-term at all.
0: Thank you for talking with me and with good reason.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Robert McNabb is a professor of economics at Old Dominion University. With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.